camera's on and looking right at me. Ready to go? Okay, uh, sin and shit. Your chair's not on. And uh, we know that from the Spock sign. Go ahead. Okay, keep going. Okay, here we go. Uh, two front teeth, sharp, press, eat, number two. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have I. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Great stuff. That was a funny starting. I forgot to turn that on. I forgot to turn that on and plug this in. So oh, that was so a little like bizarre. You. That was, well, I just, you know, it's been a long, long day. So where are we? We're in the 28th of July. Um, okay. No, 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 25. 25. That's right, because uh, 28th is Sunday. Okay, 25th of July. Um, we've got a few uh, things. First one is we had the uh, uh, Superior Word Satellite in Kenya, and he went and got us another church in Rwanda. So we have a superior word satellite in Rwanda now as well. So if they're listening, we want to welcome them. And he said, next stop is Tanzania. So uh, this is Oma who's over in uh, Kenya and he's, uh, he's traveling and he uh, got some laptops for him so they can hook up and attend Bible studies and church services. And uh, there you go, Rwanda is on with us. And uh, Dan is in the hospital, a guy I married to, uh, a girl I went to high school with uh, about a year ago, and he's in the hospital with low sodium, and she's asked for prayer for him. And one other thing is that uh, uh, I mentioned this on Sunday, and I did not get an answer until I checked today, but Sue Jacob, who attends, she comes down here, she's been here twice from up north, and the first time she was here, a couple days after she left, they went back home and her husband died, and so that was difficult. And then her, I believe it's a son-in-law, uh, got swept away in a river this past Sunday, and uh, they did find his body, and they weren't sure if he had lived or not, and he didn't. So we want to have them in prayer. That's kind of difficult to uh, go through that for sure. And then also uh, today was Miss Magnuson's funeral, and we went out to the internment as well, and they had bagpipes, and it was very well done. The whole thing was very well put together, and uh, anyway, the, the family obviously is going to miss her, but... They all know where she is. There wasn't a person in there that didn't get the gospel as well twice. That's so twice. twice. That was pretty wonderful. Uh, we'll go to this day in Christian history, and then we'll have a prayer. Let's see here. Yes. Okay, Sergio said we are. So. Oh, okay. Well, let me let me go ahead and tell him while uh, we're reading this. But let me. Uh, let me, uh, okay, yes, yeah, answer Joe. No, just tell them that YouTube is not live. Okay, in the uh, fifth century BC, all the Jews in the world lived under the rule of the Persian Empire that controlled the entire Near East. In 474 BC, they were in a desperate situation. Xerxes was king of the empire, and his prime minister, Haman, hated the Jews. Incensed that a Ooh. Jew named, Mor yes, <laughs> Jew named Mordecai refused to kneel down before him. Haman vindictively plotted to not only have the Mordecai, but all of the Jews in the empire put to death. 
As prime minister, he received permission from Xerxes to issue a decree setting a date for the extermination of the Jews 11 months later. That's Esther chapter 3. Since virtually all Jews lived within the Persian Empire, this decree was a direct threat to God's program of redemption. The key to understanding this confrontation can be found in the name of Haman's father, Hamadatha the Agagite. Haman's name in indicates that he and his father descended from Agag, the king of Amalek. Thus, Haman himself could be considered an Amalekite. The Amalekites had been the first nation to attack Israel. We talked about that this past Sunday. Um, after its exodus from Egypt, and as a result, God had declared, I will blot out every trace of Amalek from under heaven. Later, God commanded Israel, never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies and the land he is giving you as a special possession, you are to destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. Years later, Saul, the first king of Israel, disobeyed God and spared Agag, king of the Amalekites, rather than killing him as God had commanded. Because of this disobedience, God rejected Saul as king. Mordecai is described as a descendant of Kish, who was the father of Saul. And now 500 years after King Saul, Mordecai, Saul's descendant, continued to battle the Amalekites. Mordecai persuaded his cousin, Queen Esther, to go on in uninvited to the court of King Xerxes at risk of her life to petition him to spare her people, the Jews, from Haman's decree. She found favor with the king and he granted her an audience. The king listened to her petition and agreed to grant it. However, since a Persian law could not be revoked, he had to issue another decree. On June 25th, 474 BC, King Xerxes issued a decree granting authority to the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies when the attack mandated by his first decree commenced. The book of Esther thus describes the final chapter in God's holy war on the Amalekites. Haman was hanged on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai, Esther 7, 1 verses 10, and Mordecai replaced him as prime minister, Esther 8, 2 and 15. The following year, when the Jews were attacked, they successfully defended themselves, killing 75,000 of their enemies including all the sons of Haman. God's command to exterminate the Amalekites was finally fulfilled. And we have, and actually, if you watch the sermon from last Sunday, you'll know that the Amalek, the spirit of it, continues on to this day. And that is what Esther is picturing. If you haven't seen the Esther sermons we did, go back and watch them. You will be blessed. I guarantee it. You'll hear some things you've never heard out of the book of Esther before. Did he respond? Okay, sure. good. King Saul's incomplete obedience resulted in 500 years of further conflict. What are examples in your life when you have been only partially obedient to God? What have been the results? We can't make a partial effort and expect a full result. God expects full obedience. And it says in Matthew 28, 20, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Funny, I listened to a sermon on the way up to the funeral today, which Chuck Swindle did on exactly that verse, so good stuff there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word, and we are grateful for now that we have closure on the life of uh, Miss Magnuson, and we know that uh, she will be raised at the sound of the trumpet just a moment before we are, and boy, that's worth all of eternity, seeing your face first. Wow, 
So uh, we'll be uh, taken up to the clouds together with her someday and all of the other saints. And may that day be soon. But until then, we just are grateful for the chance to have known her and we pray for her family. We pray for the other things that were mentioned there. And we thank you for the people in Rwanda who have joined us at the Superior Word. And we ask that you bless their time and uh, just help them to grow in their knowledge of Christ and in your word. Lord, we uh, just commit this uh, Bible study to you and we pray that it will be handled properly and that uh, if there's any deviation from what you would expect, that people would check that out and, and alert me and we'll get that doctrine corrected. But we do pray that our doctrine is appropriate. And we thank you for this chance to be in your presence and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 28 today. Okay, so I'll start at the top of the paragraph. Sounds good. One verse before. All right. Okay, uh, 20, 27, yeah. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Okay, here we go. Let's see. 11.28 in the preceding verse, and in the verse which follows as well, the notion of partaking of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner is noted. This then is an insert into the discussion on that concept. Only after determining his motivations as he comes before the table should a person then partake. And so we do that every week. We take a moment and we stop and we think about what we're doing and why we're doing it and the significance of what's occurred. The verb for examine is dokimatsu, and it indicates that one should prove themselves concerning sincerity. If one is coming before the table with the feeling of meriting the elements, then they have a misunderstanding of their own state before the Lord. There's nothing in a person which merits what they symbolize. Rather, we are wholly dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ for his work, which was accomplished on our behalf. This concept of personal unworthiness, however, is not what Paul is referring to, as was seen in the preceding verse. Last week we did that. Rather, he is referring to the manner in which one approaches the table. Being unworthy in no way prohibits participation in the Lord's Supper. People emailed me about that from time to time. It says, you know, unworthy, am I unworthy, and should I be taking the Lord's Supper? Being unworthy does not prohibit you from participating. Rather, acting in an unworthy manner does. An unworthy manner then could actually be demonstrated in someone's belief that they were, in fact, worthy of what they were receiving. In this, true humility is set against feelings of self-righteousness or of inherently deserving what the elements signify. Once one has elevated himself and tested his, or evaluated himself and tested his motivations, he should then ensure that his actions as he partakes are in line with his proper motivations. If so, then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It is a process of internal evaluation combined with external demonstration, which Paul speaks of. Life application, we went through, I think, 18 verses last week. We went through yeah, a whole bunch of them. Through. Yeah, it was a lot. Anyway, life application in receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper be pleased that the Lord has accepted you by his grace, despite your inherent unworthiness to come before him. In gratitude to this, be sure to conduct yourself in a manner which is worthy of that. And I should say that if your church doesn't give you the Lord's Supper every week, you ought to just take it at home. 
I mean, there's nothing to prohibit you. There's other than what's given in the Bible itself. That's it. That's all the instruction we have. You got somebody at your house you can take the Lord's Supper with. You're joining in fellowship. Take it. Anyway, um, 11.29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. There you go. The body of the Lord. Verse 11.29. For builds upon the previous thought concerning the taking of the Lord's Supper. Paul has just noted that partaking in an unworthy manner makes one guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, a self-examination should occur before one partakes. And that's, as I said, that's why we do that. We stop what we're doing, we sit, we're quiet, and it gives us a chance to think through our own life and what we've done in the week behind, what we expect to do in the week ahead that's maybe better or more in line with the Lord's word. And we evaluate ourselves. We evaluate where we are in the presence of the Lord, where we want to be, where we were, etc. And we take that and we say, Lord, I know I'm not worthy of this, and I've proven that very well in the past week. But I know that this is by grace, and so I'll come forward. But I want to, under, or I understand that this is not something I've merited, but you merited for me. All right? Self-examination should occur. And the reason for this is given in what follows the word, the opening word of four. It is because he who drinks, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. In this, a connection is being made between the judgment symbolized in the elements, that of the death of the Lord, and that of the judgment that one drinks to himself when partaking of those same elements in an unworthy manner. If what Jesus did is treated in an impious or flippant manner, then judgment is to be necessarily expected for that attitude. Everybody understand that? Now, in the early church, people actually died. Paul, I, he either got to that last week or he's going to, I think he's going to get to it uh, this week. Anyway. Next verse. Uh, okay, next verse. Anyway, uh, he says that people, well, we'll talk about it when we get there, but we can't expect people to die keel over at the Lord's table anymore. Those were given in the early church, just like all things were, to establish the church and to give a precedent, just as Ananias and Sapphira blasphemed, you know, they, they lied against the Holy Spirit and they were called home. Well, people have done that 10 billion times since then and nothing has happened. But the precedence was set, just as you saw in the Old Testament. When the first person broke the Sabbath, what did they do? They stoned him to death. That's right. When things happen, there's always a precedent. And the reason why, why would the Lord do that? Why would he give a precedent or give a, a, a what do you call it, a command? Or in this case, it's an exhortation, but it's also a command, even though it's something that we can disobey um, without being killed. But why would he give a uh, command and then charge the per first person that does it, and maybe not somebody later? Why would he do that? In other words, we know... What's that? To recognize he was holy. Okay, now that's true, but why would he not do, the, you know, like uh, we know that uh, David committed adultery, right? He didn't get stoned, but other people did. Maybe on the first occasion of the Sabbath breaking, what was the other person that he did something and, uh, oh, blasphemed the name of the Lord? And we know the other people in the history of the Bible did that and they didn't get stoned or they, uh, why would he make sure that the first person was made an example? Well, to show mercy after that. To show mercy after that, that's right. But there's another reason, which is tied in with that. It's to show that he is not arbitrary, okay? If he skipped over the first offense, 
then that would show somebody that is, or a God that is both arbitrary and vindictive. He can say, well, I'm not going to do this person, but I'm going to do that person. But if he sets the example with the first person, like Ananias and Sapphira, and doesn't do it with the rest of them, that's because he's merciful. And he has just showed us that this is my standard, but I'm granting you mercy. If you skip over the first time, you tell your children, if you do this, you're going to get a spanking. And one kid does it first, and then the other one does it, and you spank the second one, then that's showing that you are both arbitrary and vindictive. And that is, the Lord is neither. Okay, he is merciful, and he could forgive all of them. But then why give the command at all the first place? Okay, so there you go. That's very good. Good thoughts. Um, let's see here. So in this, a connection is being made between the judgment symbolized in the elements, that of the death of the Lord, and that of the judgment, which one drinks to himself when partaking of those same elements. Okay. If what Jesus did is treated in an impious or flippant manner, then judgment is to be necessarily expected for that attitude. Okay. The type of judgment is explained in the coming verses, which is 30 through 32. It is explicitly noted as temporal, meaning earthly judgment. And this is what should be expected. If a non-believer partakes of the elements, then there's no true meaning to that non-believer and what they are doing. Therefore, no true judgment would work to correct their unbelief. Why bother, right? However, if a believer, which is whom Paul is implying in his words, partakes in an unworthy manner, then a temporal judgment resulting in temporal punishment should be the logically expected outcome. They're already saved by Christ. Therefore, what they need is correction in this life, not in the next. And all of this is expected because of not discerning the Lord's body. There was no distinction made between what is holy and what is profane. It implies eating and drinking as if the elements are common and it fails to make the necessary connection to the work of Christ on our behalf, which is the whole point of taking it every week, is to remember the work of Christ. If we're not doing that, then we are in error. The King James Version has the most unfortunate and confused rendering of eateth and drinking or drinketh damnation to himself. Some speculate that the term damnation, which they use, may have had less force at the time of the translation, but this is improbable. A review of the other uses of the word damnation in the King James Version point especially to the punishments of hell. But the word translated here is crema. It is more properly rendered judgment. As Vincent's Word Studies notes, crema is a temporary judgment and so is distinguished from katakrima, condemnation, from which this temporary judgment is intended to save the participant. This mistranslation has caused many to fall into neuroses over taking of the elements, and it has led to many not taking them at all. I've had people email me many times about this issue, saying, I don't take it because I don't want to be damned. It ain't going to happen. If you are a saved believer in Christ, there is no damnation. There is judgment for reward and loss, but there is no judgment for condemnation. But people read these mistranslated parts of scripture and they get incorrect theology and they're scared the rest of their life about doing something like taking the Lord's Supper, which we're actually what? Commanded. Commanded to do. That's right. The two ordinances of the Lord. Be baptized. Yes, I am a dispensationalist and not a hyper dispensationalist. There is one gospel for Jew and Gentile, the Jewish feasts, which are not Jewish feasts at all, but feasts of the Lord are all fulfilled in who? In Christ. He fulfilled them. 
It is the feast of the Lord establishing the new covenant. Everything he did was to fulfill the old covenant types and establish the new covenant, showing that he is the fulfillment and anticipation of those in the new covenant. Okay, so that is why we take the two ordinances. We are baptized because the Lord commanded it. He did it after his resurrection and he did it to all people. He did it for Jew and for the Begins with N, ends with Asians. Anybody? Nation. The nations, the Gentiles. That's right. Yes. Question. Yes. Being baptized. Yep. Um, no, no, it doesn't. All it says is be baptized. There's nothing about witnesses, and they're connected to the baptism. It doesn't, it is not specified. All it says is go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go to the uh, epistles, Paul will say, yes, I baptize these people. And you could assume that it's a person and a leadership person, but it does not explicitly say that anywhere, anywhere. Uh, you know, I would not do that because what you're doing when you're baptizing, she asked, do they can't hear you online? Can the person baptize himself? Now that the guy in the movie, The Apostle, I don't know if you watched that movie, Robert Duvall, great movie, great movie. The first time I watched it, mom told me you should watch that movie. Oh, it's so good. And I watched it and I was so angry at mom. I was furious. I was actually, I wasted my time on this. This guy's got terrible doctrine. He murdered somebody. He's hiding out. And I, I missed the entire point of the movie. And afterward, I was lying in bed for days after that thinking, what a movie. What a movie. It took me thinking about to understand the whole point of the movie is the guy loved Jesus. And he was the most fallible guy in the world. Everything he did was wrong, but he loved Jesus. And there he is at the end of the movie. Oh, I don't want to give it away. If you haven't seen it, watch The Apostle by Robert Duvall. But I will tell you that when I first watched it, I'm thinking doctrine. You know what? Most people in this world don't have any doctrine at all, but they love Jesus. That They just exude Jesus. And so what they need is correction in their doctrine. But don't miss the fact that this person loves Christ. And once I got that through my head and thought about it at night for a couple of days, I went back and every time I've had a major thing come up in my life, before I get into that major thing, what do I do, Hedeko? I pull out the apostle and I watch it before I was ordained, before I went around the U.S. Anytime something big is coming up in my life, I always watch the movie The Apostle because it reminds me that it's not about doctrine. It's not about crossing every I and dotting every T. I know I got that backwards. I did that intentionally. Anyway, um, it's about loving Jesus. First and foremost, if you lose your heart for Christ, and I was talking about Hedeko with that today, because uh, we heard some people talk at the church and some of them, or I'm sorry, Miss Magnuson's funeral. And some of them had some, I would think a little deficient theology that talked, but they love Jesus, right? And I said, I guarantee you that it is more important that we love Jesus with all our hearts than it is that we are really sound in doctrine. Now, if you're gonna be a teacher, you need to do both. You can't just be a, a sound doctrine because if you don't have any heart for Christ, what good is it? Right? But if you mingle the two together and you say, I love Jesus with all my heart and I'm going to pursue right doctrine, boy, you're in the sweet spot there. Okay, If you're not, then you need to stay just in love with Jesus and not teach. But if you're a teacher, you need to definitely first be in love with Jesus. Both of those go together. Um, yes, go ahead. Did not the Jews baptize themselves in all those little baptisteries they had at the temple? Well, that was a little different. That was, that was uh, uh, mikveh. That was a ceremonial washing. Okay, John the Baptist baptized people, yeah. the disciples of Jesus baptized people. And oh, getting back to the point of the apostle, he baptized himself as an apostle in the movie. Okay, I when I saw that, I thought that is not appropriate. And he did it all alone. 
Well, the reason why we do this is to make a public proclamation of our faith in Christ. And so to baptize yourself really doesn't do anything. Yeah, I'm buried with Christ in his death and I'm raised in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody saw it. And the whole point is to say, I am making the world know and seeing that I am willing to follow Christ. And some people do this at the expense of their lives. They actually get out there and if they're caught being baptized, that's the end of their life. That happens all around the world. We're blessed here. But the answer is I would not baptize myself. And two, there is nothing in scripture that says somebody in particular has to baptize another. It says, go and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And like I said, there's a couple times it's mentioned in the epistles and that's about it. In the Acts as well, Acts is descriptive. So I'd be careful with you know, pulling any doctrine out of Acts other than understanding the establishment of the church. But I would have somebody baptize you and I would think that you ought to have somebody that is capable of teaching you proper doctrine before you before they baptize, just because, you know, their questions arise and who are you going to go to? So, but that's all just me talking off the top of my head. Okay, so um, once again, mistranslation in the King James Version, it is not for damnation. It is only for judgment, okay? So don't worry about that one. Life application, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, you will never, ever become unsaved. And I got to tell you what, when I, I always will try to bring up doctrine when it comes to mind in the prophecy updates. I do that for a couple reasons. One, because if people don't want to know doctrine, I don't want them watching the prophecy updates. They can go click off of me and unsubscribe and it doesn't bother me at all. If I wanted to have... 350,000 views a week. I just sit there and make up stuff and tickle ears and we'd have a giant following. That doesn't interest me at all. So I try to bring up doctrine which will upset people. And I do that on purpose because I don't want people that don't like that particular issue, which is a biblical issue. They shouldn't be watching Prophecy Updates. They should be studying their Bible or they can go watch some other goofy thing. I don't care. But almost every single time that I bring up a doctrinal issue, People either get angry with me and they send me dirty emails or they just unsubscribe and you'll see the numbers go right down. Doesn't bother me at all. Doesn't bother me at all. Okay. Cold this refining. week, what's that? Refining. refining or or culling the herd or yes. something. That's right. You know, but this past Sunday, I talked about doctrine, eternal salvation. And I read something that I typed and posted on Facebook. I didn't get one dirty email. Now, I was so surprised because usually people come and you believe in that you're going to hell once saved, always saved and blah, blah, not one. I was thoroughly surprised at it. I don't know what the numbers because I never look at the numbers anymore. It doesn't interest me looking at numbers. I don't look at the numbers on the, the Bible studies or the sermons or the prophecy updates. And I actually, if I have to click on a video to send somebody the link, I put my hand over because I don't want to know what the number was or will be. It doesn't interest me. Anyway, um, having said that, I was thoroughly surprised that People obviously responded favorably to the doctrine of eternal salvation. This shows you've been doing good culling. Yeah, good culling of the herd. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, actually, I, when I use the word cull, I usually use the term pack. I said herd here, but a pack is a bunch of dogs, which are unclean animals. And so I use that because anyway, that's, I know it's not nice of me, but that's what I do. Or sometimes I'll say uh, cleansing the souder, which is, you know what a souder is. It's a place where pigs are. Okay. Anyway, um, life application. If you have been saved by the blood of Christ, you will never become unsaved. However, your actions may have consequences in this life, and they may lead to a loss of rewards in your eternal state. The way to avoid these pitfalls is to know your Bible. That's right. Okay. And apply it to your life. Obey God's word. 1130. No, it's not 1130. I'm talking about 
the blue next verse. Blue Thank light you. Will, the yeah, what? The blue light will judge for you. The blue light? On the police car behind Oh, yeah, yeah. That'll be a judge for you. The blue light on the police car. That's you got to stay away from that one. <laughs> that is why many among you are weak and sick. There a number you. of you have fallen, fallen asleep. asleep. There you go. That's the, the verse right there. Okay, because of the unworthy manner from the previous verse in which the congregants at Corinth had taken the Lord's Supper, Paul says that many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. In other words, he directly equates their weakness, their sickness, and deaths to their conduct at the meal. There are a couple of things to note about this. One, as he wrote this letter directly to those at Corinth, then his words about the sickness and death must be true. They must be because he's writing to them and he's told them this, regardless of the reason for it. He's saying that this is the reason, but it must be true that these people, that this had happened to these people. Two, as this letter specifically addresses their improper conduct at the Lord's Supper, this certainly happened. So they can't deny that either. And three, because he is tying their health to the improper observance of the Lord's Supper, he, he, Paul, is fully convinced that this is the cause of the ill health and the death. It is a spiritual connection between two physical concepts. Concerning the third point, scholars have attempted to equate the physical aspect of the meal, overindulgence, with the ill health and death. But if that were the case, then why would Paul only call them out for their overindulgence and improper attitude during the Lord's Supper? He didn't, right? In fact, he rhetorically asked them, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If he was concerned about their portly appearance or their overindulgence in wine, he would have said, you are living in an unhealthy way and you will keel over it, keel over from it someday. That's what he would have said, but he didn't do that. But instead, he ties these things directly in with the Lord's Supper. Hello, how are you there, Bones? Their weakness, sickness, and sleep, meaning death, is an idiom for death to, to the follower of the Lord. Everybody got that? When Paul says sleep, he is speaking about death, just like uh, Miss Magnuson today. Some people actually said she's gone to rest. Okay, other people said, well, she's dead or she's gone or whatever. Everybody used different terminology, but Paul's terminology would be sleep. She is in a sleep. All right. So, um, although this may have been an occurrence unique to the apostolic period of the church, talking about people uh, being sick and dying from taking the Lord's elements wrong, it may have been, okay, it's unique to the apostolic period of the church. There is nothing to suggest that. If there is ill health or even premature death in a congregation, the conduct of the Lord's Supper should be evaluated. What God chooses to use as a form of chastisement and judgment is up to him. He may not do it in some churches. He may do it in others. I'm not going to second guess it either way. All right. The fact that this is recorded in the Bible shows us that this may occur as an observance when it is improperly conducted. All right. I'm not going to second guess it. I'm not going to say that's the reason because people will poke their heads into a church and say, well, you guys are sick and they have no idea what's going on as far as the Lord's Supper or the attitude of the person who is taking the Lord's Supper. That's something each one of us has to evaluate and decide ourselves. If we're sick, maybe it's because we're improperly taking it. Or it may be because we're eating the wrong foods or we've got cancer or some other thing. So is it prescriptive or prescriptive? I would call it prescriptive. It's Paul's epistles. Okay. He is prescribing something. All right. It does describe what happened. 
No doubt about it. But he is telling them that this is the reason. So that's why I say it may be, it may not be, and that has to be evaluated, one, by the church, and two, by the individual in the church, okay? I would say it's prescriptive, but, okay, because the Lord does not always have all Sabbath breakers get executed. We see that. As a matter of fact, you see it right in the book of Nehemiah. It says that the people, you know, Nehemiah is the people coming back to Israel after being judged, and there they were not observing the Sabbath, and they were doing things that they shouldn't be. It's recorded right there in the book of Nehemiah. Doesn't say anything about Nehemiah taking him out and stoning him, no. right? So there we have. We've got the guy in uh, uh, Jesus healed, and he's carrying his mat. And did they stone him for it? They, they asked him, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. But nobody picked up stones to, to stone the guy, right? They just said, what are you doing? Well, the guy that healed me told me to pick up my mat and go. Right? Where is he? Okay, so there are instances which are, what do you say, explicit in the Bible? He was stoned for a violating the sabbath and there are many other instances where it doesn't happen and yet nothing happens all right each thing has to be evaluated individually okay anyway um here we go um yeah life application how god judges is up to god it is our duty to learn his word adhere to it and render to him submission and obedience with a right and holy attitude there you go that's the best i can do with that it happened in the early church. It may be happening in churches. It may not be happening in churches, but we need to evaluate against the word of God. All right. And he will decide the judgment. And what does he say that if the church is completely not doing what it's supposed to be doing? That's right. He's going to take the lampstand out. And that's not something that's sitting on the pulpit where everybody can see it. That has to be evaluated by the people in that church. Is this church even effective anymore? Because if it's not, I am out of here. Right. That's up to the individual. But there are bad churches churches that are not doing the right thing that still have their lampstand and we know that because it says yet there are some of you in sardis who will walk with me they're they're worthy they'll walk with me dressed in white that's a little bit of a misquote i'm sure but there he goes that's what he says so we have good people in bad churches we got bad churches which lose their lampstand everything needs to be evaluated against scripture and especially our personal walk with the lord okay eleven thirty-one. but if we judge ourselves we would not come under judgment okay in this verse, Paul makes a change to include himself in his word, saying we. It is a way of identifying with the Corinthians in the struggle of life and the fight against sin. And how true his words ring in any situation. For, the word for, ties the thought directly to his previous words that many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. It is a type of disciplinary judgment which has been rendered upon the church at Corinth to get them to realize their state. In realization, they should then contemplate, and in contemplation, they should act. The reason for having laws is more often than not a way of keeping people from harm. If we ignore the law, we are bound to get harmed. Now, in Florida, we could say it's a little stupid because in Florida, you used to have to wear a helmet on a motorcycle. And they came out and they said, you no longer have to wear a helmet on a motorcycle. That taking away the law is going to inevitably lead to people dying. One of my friends that lives right down the road here, or actually did, now he lives over closer to you. But anyway, his brother died on a motorcycle. He wasn't wearing a helmet and he died. Okay, you could argue that, well, we need to have freedom in America to not have laws forced on us. But in the same state that says you don't have to wear a helmet on a motorcycle, it says that you have to buckle up. 
Now, tell me that makes any sense at all. If you're going to say, well, we need to have freedom in this state, then we ought to have freedom at least to not buckle up. Now, if you want to see the results of not buckling up, go online and say person ejected from vehicle. And you'll see dozens of videos, people just filming and out goes somebody out a window as the car is spinning and the body gets crumpled under the car and that's the end of them. Or I saw one, a guy got in an accident and the car started doing this and this guy went literally 150 feet in the air and he went over a billboard and you know that was the end of him. So that's your choice, all right? But if you're gonna say one thing and not another, that's not a very sensible way of setting laws, okay? Laws ought to be the minimum in the land at least in the land of America, and they ought to be for the people's good, protection, but they ought to also be concerning whether there's a personal freedom that's actually violated by doing that law, okay? The reason for having laws is more often than not a way of keeping people from harm. I'm gonna give you an example of a very good law, okay? My brother, mom's not here, so shame on her. Um, uh, we, we remember when we were young, there were mullet in the bay everywhere. You could walk across the mullet to the other side of the bay. And we lived in a big part of the bay, right? We lived on the island and the mainland is over there. And what happened? They had boats when we were young, fishing boats. And they would, every morning they'd be out there and they'd drop their, I think they're called seine nets. They'd drop them off the back of the boat and they'd make giant circles and they would pull in thousands and thousands of fish, thousands of fish. And the ones they didn't like, like the catfish, they'd kill them and they'd toss them back in, right? They, it would just clean up the whole bay. And eventually those boats outfished the entire bay. There was nothing left in Sarasota Bay. You know, a couple fish here and there because they come in the pass through the, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, the passes with the tides every day. But other than that, there, that bay was dead. But when we were young, there were fish everywhere. And so what they do, they passed a law to take care of the harm of the people. And they said, and I'm not a law person. I don't like laws. I think they're usually not very good. Their people have a pet peeve and they go and pass a law. But they passed a law, no of that type of net within 12 miles of the shore. If you want to use that type of net, you have to go way out in the Gulf, okay? And now you can use a cast net, which I use off the dock all the time. And there are fish everywhere. Still not like it was when we were young, but there are fish everywhere, especially during spawning season. They gather up by the tens of thousands. If I go out and they're coming by my dock and I throw one net, I can pull in 150 or 200 fish. It's so many that I cannot bring the net in. I have to walk the net to the shore and then pull it up on the shore one fish at a time. Okay. And I got these piles of fish and what do we do? We go smoke mullet, right? No, we don't smoke them like this. We smoke them in a yeah, smoker. But, yeah, they're very hard to keep lit. But I will tell you that some laws are good and they are kept, they're given to keep people from harm. And that was a good law, okay? If we ignore the law, we are bound to get harmed. People go into the bay and they start dropping those nets again. You're going to fish out the bay and people are going to get harmed, all right? However, if we are caught in the act, we may receive whatever punishment the law mandates in order to get us to consider and correct our ways. Think of any law that you violate and when you get a ticket or a citation or, a, you know, a code enforcement, there you go. You got to pay the fine. All right. The same is true with the precepts of the Bible. There was an expected standard, often explicit and often implicit. In the case of the Lord's Supper, the standard was and is explicit. We know this because of what Paul said earlier in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Therefore, in the verbal instruction of the Lord's Supper, he would have given all that was necessary to avoid the judgments which had come upon them. 
If they had considered their ways, there would have been no weakness, no sickness, no death that could be attributed to their improper conduct. However, at the same time, there would have been no instructions for the Lord's Supper and writing for future generations either. And so what happened to them at least gave us the instructions in writing that were otherwise not given in writing, except in the Gospels. Paul expanded upon them. He gave us the instructions, and we have been using those now for 2,000 years, which would not have existed if they didn't obey his verbal instructions, right? So even in the discipline of the Corinthians, a good result has arisen. With the inclusion of these written instructions, all churches have the same information with which to conduct this right. Because we have this specific instruction, how much more accountable to the Lord are we? Therefore, let us judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. With your proper knowledge, don't hesitate to note what needs correction in your church and do it. Life application. Be sure to read, contemplate, and then apply the precepts of the Bible. In so doing, you will avoid many of the pitfalls which it is trying to keep you from. How I cherish my time with you, O oh God. Each moment as I live, you are here with me. Every single step that I take on the path which I trod, you illuminate it so that I can see. Your word is a lamp to my feet, it is true. It is a light to my path wherever I go. There is never a time that I am without you. I have hidden your word in my heart. I cherish it so. 11.32 When we are judged by the Lord, we are dis being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Okay, very close, different word. They say chastened here instead of disciplines. Same thought. Okay, 11.32. This verse shows us that those who are noted in verse 30 as being weak, uh, weak, sick, or who even sleep, meaning having died, were still saved despite their incorrect actions, which led to the judgment rendered by the Lord, termed here as being chastened. Everybody got that? He, it's explicit right there. They were saved people, and they did not receive damnation. They received judgment. And there's a giant difference between the two. It then shows that the term damnation used by the King James translation was, in fact, an immensely poor choice of words. There's still salvation for believers who erred in this way because salvation is eternal. That's right. It is forever. When someone believes they are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that they will never again come under condemnation. The point I made on the uh, Salvation is Eternal Prophecy Update, if you missed it, I talked about, you know, all of the points I always talk about, but uh, one of the things that I said was that uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, sometimes I say it in this class, but I don't always say it during a salvation call. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God is not counting men's sins against them. When they are in Christ, he is not counting men's sins against them. If the wages of sin is death and God's not counting sins against you, then you cannot die. You are saved eternally. One plus one equals two always in theology. Always. There is no end around in God's logic. His logic is impeccable. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee. If you can lose your salvation, then it wasn't a guarantee, etc. You can go through all the same logic again and again and again. But 2 Corinthians 5.19, if anything else shows you that salvation is eternal, if you're not being counted sins, and sins is what causes the spiritual death, the disconnect from God, then you cannot be spiritually disconnected from God again. It always equals two when you have one and one in the Bible, okay? 
you're saved. Salvation is eternal. When someone believes they're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that they will never again come under condemnation. Thus, Paul makes a distinction between believers and the world. World is what he says in that verse, meaning unregenerate people. For those in Christ, there is the surety of salvation. For those in the world, there is the surety of condemnation. The chastening of believers is noted and detailed in a it's um, noted in a detailed way in Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. Let me read you that really quickly here. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. It says, I'll take you back to five. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I'll continue with the quote in a second, but think it through. If Jews are accepted by God through Jesus Christ and are called sons, and if we are accepted by God through Jesus Christ and we are called sons, then we are all sons of God. There is one gospel, Jew and Gentile. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, meaning God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Great words. Okay, let's see here. That was Hebrews 12, life application. Chastening from the Lord has a purpose that is intended to mold us further to his image and to correctly align our lives with his, with his intent for us. Let us look with gratitude to the Lord that his chastening proves that we are legitimate children. Okay, 1133. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Okay, that's what they weren't doing before. He got through all of this talk to tell him now, instead of doing this, wait for each other. All right, therefore is given to sum up all of Paul's thoughts, starting in verse 17. In that verse, he noted that those in Corinth had come together, not for the better, but for the worse. In explanation of that, in comments intended to correct the problem, and in justification of why his directions were so important, he laid out his points in an orderly fashion until verse 32. In an overall summary statement, he then gives them his curative recommendation by beginning with the words, my brethren. The addressees, despite their mishandling of the matter thus far, were still considered among the fellowship. The loss of salvation because of their conduct is not even a consideration. It's not even something that he ever mentions, ever, ever in his writings does he ever mention the fact that you could lose your salvation, nor does any other verse in the Bible, unless you take it out of context. Then you can come up with that, no problem, okay? The loss of salvation because of their conduct is not a consideration. And so to these brethren, he says, when you can't come together to eat, wait for one another. Instead of hurriedly gobbling up the food that was brought to the meal, 
They should wait until all had arrived and would be willing to, willing to fellowship with others and share in what was available. In this, the believers would truly be a united group and they would be more likely to focus on the Lord and on his work rather than on their stomachs. I'll give you an example of that today. We're at the funeral of Miss Magnuson. We're going home. And I told Mr. Magnuson, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fit in the time to go to the interment ceremony. I've got the class today. I've got other things that I have to do. He said, no problem. This was the important thing. And I wanted to go, but I just wasn't sure I could. And plus, we have to eat. And I said, he had to go. I, I, I just, I got to eat. I've been working since four o'clock in the morning, right? These people got up at a regular hour and they, they probably started working at nine or whatever. Or maybe they didn't work because the service was at 10, right? So they probably had breakfast. I haven't eaten a thing. I had a cup of coffee at... 3.45 this morning. Okay, I got to eat. So then I thought, I know how to fit all this together. We're going to go and we're going to drive out to the internment, but we're going to stop at 7-Eleven and get lunch. And she's like, 7-Eleven? Hey, they got corn dogs and, you know, gross. I said, you wait. You wait till we go to 7-Eleven and you see the sandwiches they have. And she got a tuna fish and I got a chicken salad. And she said, these are better than Publix. They have really good food at 7-Eleven. I'm telling you, they have good quality, but they also got the junk. You want the junk, you go over here and you got all that, all the stuff that's bad for you, but they have some really good, wasn't it good? Look at her, she's shaking her head. And this is a lady that she will not touch anything that's gross. I mean, anything, that thing of high chew over there, she'd rather starve to death than eat that candy. I've been eating it all day since I got here. I've been eating those. Once you start eating those high chew candies that, that Lynn sent to us, you can't stop. So just keep your hands out of there and I'll finish them, okay? They're marvelous. Oh, they are marvelous. Anyway, um, here we go. The um, Where was I? Um, uh, still considered the loss of salvation because of their conduct is not a consideration. And so he said, oh, I read that. Okay, in this, the believers would truly be a united group, okay? And they would be more likely to focus on the Lord and on his work rather than their stomachs. The point that I was making is that we ate on the way out there. We were fed. We also got out to the interment. It was a great time. They had bagpipes. It was marvelous. And then I was able to get home, hurry up, get the work I need to do in the computer and come here and get the place cleaned. And after cleaning that, then here we have class. So it all worked out. But a good way to consider how this is true would be to think of a prayer meeting. Okay. If people are continuously walking in and out, then the prayer will by its very nature be dysfunctional. All right. Do you do that at your prayer meetings? Have people walking in and out all the time? No, you come in, you meet, you, you pray. It is set. It is something that you do. All right. Concentration will be lost and there will be a repetition of prayers already offered. And there may even be resentment by those who had been trying to concentrate because of the stream of interruptions. Okay. Life application. A church which is not run in an orderly and pious fashion will inevitably fail to unite in mind and heart on the Lord. The worship will become less he-centered and more me-centered. In all things, let us remember that it is the Lord who is to be exalted during praise and worship. And that's why I'm very punctual with Sunday morning, Thursday, when we do these things, at the second it hits five o'clock here or at the second that it hits 9.45 on Sunday morning, everything clicks on it is it's we do that and we try to keep the same time every single week because it's about the lord and once we start diverting from that it all becomes about us you need to be in the same thing because there are people online that this is their church and they need to feel that they're a part of it if we start deviating from that there's they don't know what's going on because during the break we've got the music playing for them 
and they can't hear what's being said. So we need to make sure that everybody is involved in this process. Anyway, 11.34. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, mm -hmm. so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. Okay, it's close. Different wording, but same thing. Okay, as is evidenced here, the gathering at Corinth was one which eventually evolved into something like a potluck supper. The term for it was an agape, or love feast. But as the ceremony evolved, it quickly left behind the very purpose that the Lord's Supper was intended to convey. Instead of remembering the Lord and his work, it was a chance to eat and be merry. To avoid this, Paul's words of instruction are specific. He says that if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. A regular meal belongs in a regular place. The Lord's Supper belongs among the Lord's people. Paul wanted to keep the two separate in order to maintain the dignity of the occasion. He'd already noted the consequences of having not treated the ceremony in a dignified way in that some were weak, some were sick, and some were even dead. And he didn't want that to continue lest they also come together for judgment. Again, Paul's words here implied that this is a temporal, not a spiritual judgment. Some translations incorrectly say condemnation here. It's a bad choice of words because, as Paul says elsewhere, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's right, to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Paul has the best intent for those in Corinth concerning both their continued earthly health and prosperity, as well as their spiritual growth in Christ. And his words are recorded to help us in this same manner as well. In closing out chapter 11, he finishes with, and the rest I will set in order when I come. There were other instructions, probably unique to the situation at Corinth, that needed to be set in order. However, they either weren't pressing, or maybe they were of a delicate nature so that he didn't want to include them in a public letter. What is apparent is that he is fully intending to go to Corinth to meet with them in person. Life application. The directions for the Lord's Supper are given in 1 Corinthians 11 and are based on the words of the Lord as found in the Gospels. There is specific instruction, and yet there is much detail which is left open to individual choice for the arrangement of this rite. Adhering to what is given and not trifling over these things that are left unstated will lead to a sound and healthy memorial, which will also be accommodating to time, place, culture, and personal choice. All right, everybody got that? My dad, when he went around the world one time, he went through the South Pacific Islands and he, they stopped at some teeny little island where there, it was just people that worshiped in huts and they happened to be Catholic, but they worshiped the Lord Jesus, right? And he said that they were just out there in the open. Yeah, you know, just, I don't remember all the details he said, but that's how they worship there. Whereas, you know, here we have a building, we got air conditioning, we got, and then some of them do other things. We shouldn't get too trifling over how people worship, okay? The main thing is that we worship. And I would say the second main thing after worshiping with all of our heart and love of Jesus, as I said earlier, is doctrine. Doctrine shouldn't be placed above our love for Jesus. It ought to be placed by the person who's giving that doctrine on an equal level, okay? But his first, first thing should be the love for Jesus after that, because obviously, if he doesn't have the love for Jesus, then the doctrine he learned was never based on his love for Jesus. Somebody that meets Jesus, he loves him immediately. Then the doctrine comes and they come up to an equal level. There you go. That makes sense. Okay, 12-1.
Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Don't be ignorant, okay? That's why we're going to go through chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, so we are not ignorant, okay? Paul will now begin a completely new segment of his epistle. After treating the issue of the Lord's Supper, he next moves into the area of spiritual gifts. This is probably, now these are my comments. If you disagree, you disagree, okay? There, people disagree on all kinds of things. There's no reason to send abusive emails, okay? Just, if you disagree, disagree. These are my comments because this is my doctrine. This is what I believe and this is how I am going to evaluate it. Not on what I don't believe, not on what somebody else has said that sounded good, but it's based on what I believe, okay? So you're not gonna change my mind by getting angry with me and sending a bunch of angry emails, okay? All that's gonna do is cause division and strife and I don't need it, okay? So, um, after treating the issue of the Lord's Supper, he next moves into the area of spiritual gifts. This is probably a response to the next item in the letter he referred to in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, which said, now concerning the things of which you wrote me, okay? In this verse, the word gifts is not in the original. Rather, it is inserted by the translators. In essence, the verse more accurately reads, now concerning things spiritual. Spiritual gifts are gifts which have been given by the Spirit for the building up of the church and the edification of believers. Some of these gifts were certainly apostolic in nature, meaning that they only occurred during the apostolic age, which ended with the word amen on the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 21. Okay, people will disagree on that. That's fine. Disagree all you want. Okay. Others are gifts which may seem highlighted at certain special times during the church age when revival is needed. You won't see these at all times, but you will see them at certain times, okay? And other gifts which are common and needed for the church at all times. See that there is order and there's harmony in this if you look at things logically. The gift of tongues is probably the most abused of all of the supposedly received gifts within the church today. It is given extended treatment by Paul, especially in chapter 14. This specific gift is so commonly misused in comparison with how it is defined in Scripture that nothing other than the term embarrassing can be applied to its use in churches, especially in recent times. If the word of God was held in any regard at all, there wouldn't be such a humiliating display of its supposed use. But apparently, Paul went through the same behavior in his time, and his words of instruction, which were intended to correct the problem, have been largely ignored. Some churches dismiss the word of God entirely. You show them in Scripture what it says, and it says, well, these are new gifts, or these are new directions from the Lord, or they make stuff up, because they know that what they're doing is not scriptural. In any way, shape, or form doesn't match what the Bible says, but they're going to do it anyway. There are several certainties concerning gifts, which will be detailed now and then evaluated in the coming verses. One, non-Christians cannot claim that their comparable abilities as gifts. They may have them as natural human abilities, but not as spiritual gifts. If it is a true gift, then it is given by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, and the Holy Spirit is only given to true believers in Christ. This is implied by the term brethren in this particular verse. Two, regardless of what gift is given, they all have the same divine source. Therefore, they are all intended to bring glory to God, not to the individual who received the gift. 
Three, if a gift is used in a church and it, its use contradicts the words of the Bible, which has been given by the Spirit, then it cannot be a true exercising of that gift. Everybody see that one there? That's important, especially with tongues, but it's important with all of them. God gave somebody a gift, the Holy Spirit, because that's what the Bible teaches. They're from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave us something else. What did he give us? Word. The Word of God. So if you have a gift that you are using in a church and it's not in accord with the Word of God, then it is not a gift of the Spirit in that instance. Okay? I'll read it again, just so you see. If a gift is used in a church and its use contradicts the words of the Bible, which has been given by the Spirit, then it cannot be a true exercising of that gift. Rather than exalting God, it therefore discredits the person who is misusing the supposed gift. That's really important. That's really important. Four, each gift is intended to work cohesively within the body and for the body, not independently of the body. Supposed gifts, which are disruptive or self-highlighting, are not gifts at all, but are unwarranted displays. And so, in expectation of the very important instruction from him concerning this issue of spiritual things, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant. It is the same thought he gave beginning his discourse of chapter 10, which dealt in detail with sexual immorality and idolatry. Paul's words here contain the same weight and the same heartfelt desire to ensure the glory of the Lord is maintained. Life application. Question. How can you know if a certain type of conduct or supposed gift, which is seen in a church, is acceptable or not? Answer. By reading and knowing your Bible. That's right. Which is given for this very purpose. And then comparing that knowledge to how the gift or conduct is used. Remedy for bad doctrine. Rightly divide and properly apply the words of the Bible to your church gatherings. Okay. There you go. Yes. The pastor would be the one that people look up to. Right. Or a teacher or missionary or whatever like that. And Ephesians 4, he said he gave these people gifts to the to the church. And verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up for the body of Christ. That's right. So if any gift is used for personal attainment. Then it can't be. It, it, it cannot be. That. Yes. That's exactly right. So, you know. He ties these things in and other, other, other Again things. and again, he says the same thing. He's very consistent in what he says. Yes. And that's perfect. Thank you. 12-2. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Okay, here it says dumb idols. Somebody might take objection to that nowadays because of political correctness. Don't say the word dumb. Well, that's what it is. It's a dumb idol. In this verse, Paul is showing a contrast between the spiritual gifts mentioned in verse 1 and that of dumb idols. As Gentiles, and without the knowledge of the true God, they were carried away to these dumb idols. That's what Paul says there. As occurs even today, there are charlatans who pretend to speak for idols or even through idols. Things made of stone, wood, metal, or even plastic. They have no true power and they cannot affect our lives in any way at all. An example of this provides clarity concerning the matter as is seen in Psalm 115, which says, Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8, 
It says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feel, feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You're, you're, that's almost a quote from Isaiah. Yeah, he says very close. That's right. Isaiah 45, I yeah. think it is. Yeah. yeah. It is from such a state that these Gentiles in Corinth had been called. They once followed after dumb idols, having been led by them. The word led is from the Greek word apagomenoi. It carries the idea of being seduced or carried away. Thus, the Gentile world, either uninformed or misinformed about the true God, was carried away in the deception by such idols. I lived in Asia for nine years and four months and 15 days. Actually, I was in the service that long, but about nine full years in Asia. And I can tell you that the nations of the world are led away by dumb idols. I saw it in, you know, the Hindu temples in Malaysia, the Islamic mosques, the, you know, just everything. Every, now, the, they have less idols in Islam because they think they're worshiping the true God, right? So they don't have idols per se. But when you're worshiping a false God, you are worshiping an idol, okay? Anyway, you go to Japan, they've got shrines everywhere and people pray to trees. I mean, they put bands around their trees and they pray to rocks and they, you know, it just goes on and on. It's a world full of dumb idols everywhere you go. You see it in America now. We've got all kinds of idols, right? Anyway, um, the Gentile world, either uninformed or misinformed about the true God, was carried away in deception by these idols. In contrast to this is the sealing of the Spirit in believers of Jesus Christ. They have been lovingly called out of darkness and into the light of the truth and have been endowed with spiritual gifts to confirm their new position. Having stated this, Paul will now expand on the thought so that the believers will understand their own position and their own gifts within the body. Life application. Things that we take for granted as harmless are often most destructive. Knocking on wood, Indian dream catchers, feng shui arrangements, and even idols within Christian circles, such as statues of Mary, crucifixes, and so on, will all distract our attention from the truth of our relationship in Christ. Further, our participating in such things can only lead others away from the truth as well. Keep your Bible open, keep your eyes on Jesus, and your prayers to God through him alone. Now, I'm going to qualify one of the things that I said there. I said the word crucifixes. A picture of Jesus on the cross. A lot of people take offense at that, especially because Roman Catholics adore these things. They kiss them, they bow down to them, and all that kind of stuff. But people say, Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He came down. I've heard that a million times in a million Baptist churches. Okay, and They only have a cross with nothing on it. What is the cross a symbol of? The death of Christ, but more specifically, a point in time. The death of Christ. He came down off the cross. But before he came down off the cross, he died. he died on the cross. If you have a depiction of Jesus on a cross, whether it's in a picture or on a cross, I wouldn't suggest that you go throwing it away. I would just suggest that you don't worship that cross. I don't have a problem with it because it's a specific point in time, and it is the focus of the entire Old Testament. If you look at, I got a page on my, one of my websites called the... Uh, cross in the Old Testament or something like that. And it's all the way through the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Numbers several times already. 
the cross. We've got it in the uh, uh, book of Ezekiel. You've got all the way through the Old Testament. There are pictures of the cross everywhere you go, okay? Jesus died on that cross. So if you have a depiction of it, we've got a depiction of Christ over there with crowns on his head. That was before he went to the cross, right? I mean, think things through. Yes, I agree that Jesus came down from the cross, but think things through. Everything happened at a point in time. Jesus was born into the stream of humanity, and we have pictures of what? The nativity scene. We don't worship him. You know, the Catholics, the uh, Pope, he goes up and kisses these baby Jesuses. We're not supposed to do that. But keep things in, in reasonable context in your life, okay? Just my thought on that. I do, Just because we have... Yes, go ahead. At home, when I was little, we had a, a fireplace. You know, the fireplace in the summer, mother put a picture of Jesus, a big picture that was covered up. Oh. And anytime I walked into the living room, I was always convicted because I always had been the meanest, you know. Jesus is always <laughs> looking at you, little boy. <laughs> but I would look at that and I'd have to turn away. You know, I knew I had done something yeah. that I shouldn't have been doing. shouldn't have been doing it and convicted you. Yeah, that, but you didn't worship it, did you? No. You didn't go over. Yeah, there you go. Yes. I think he was protecting you from the fire. Yeah, that's right. Reminder. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful in churches? I mean, this is what I picture. Um, even instead of the cross, to have a picture of Jesus ascending into heaven in the cloud. And he, he, it wouldn't even, you know, and it could also be his second coming. Well, that would be nice, and I have no problem with that. But Paul does say in Galatians six sixteen that I will boast in nothing but the what? cross of Christ. No, he yeah. says, I will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Paul puts a very high stress on the cross. And that's why throughout Christianity, from the very beginning all the way until this day, the cross is the symbol of the Lord. Okay, but it's true. You can have a picture of him ascending. I have no problem with that. You know, we're remembering specific points in history. And when what the same people that say we shouldn't have pictures of Jesus ascending or something are the same ones that post pictures of Jesus coming back at the rapture for us, right? I mean, come on, think things through, folks. Anyway, here we go. Um, uh, did we read the verse already, 12.3? No. Yes. Go ahead, 12.3. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, 12.3. This verse is commonly misunderstood because the context has been ignored. Do we have time? Yes, we do. Um, if this were a standalone verse, it would seem to say something completely different than is intended. But Paul begins with the word, therefore, to show us that the entire verse is dependent on what has already been said. He has been speaking of spiritual gifts as opposed to dumb idols. A true spiritual gift is one which is given by the true Spirit of God. As the Spirit is a member of the Godhead, then what issues forth from the Spirit will never contradict what the, God has, what the Godhead has proclaimed or ordained. The Godhead is in full agreement in all things, and so any gift which has come from the Spirit will be in line with that precept. Knowing this with all surety, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you. His words are given so that the Corinthians will be, will be able to absolutely discern whether a supposed gift is really from the Spirit or not. This then must be in response to a matter raised within the letter that was written to him. Someone must have claimed to prophesy in the Spirit, and what he prophesied was seemingly contrary to what 
they thought was truthful. Hence, Paul is giving certain clarification concerning the matter. And I'd like to say that I've heard many people say, the Spirit told me. I've heard that a lot. And guess what? It doesn't happen. It doesn't turn out. Or it's blatantly false in accord with what the Scripture says. Okay? That's what he's referring to here. In his words, he notes that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. The term no one is the Greek word oides. It can be a man speaking up out of his own head, whether rational or insane, or it could be speaking of a demon influencing a person or somehow, if possible, appearing in order to make a proclamation. In other words, any word spoken by anyone or anything who claims inspiration by the Spirit of God is to be considered in this. If that claim is made, it cannot be true if they call Jesus accursed. Those are Paul's words. The word for accursed is anathema, which carries the idea of being banned or set apart for destruction. It is impossible that the Spirit would say such a thing through someone, and therefore, if someone made that statement and claimed they were in the Spirit, they would be proven false. Likewise, Paul says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, he is talking about someone who is claiming inspiration by the Spirit. Anyone can actually utter the words, Jesus is Lord. You go out on the street and ask them to say it. Anybody can do it, right? But if they are not truly under the influence of the Spirit, then the words have no meaning. However, if they are in the Spirit, then the words are certainly true. The matter here isn't concerning human ability, but rather influence of the Spirit. The reason why this is important is that there are all kinds of false teachers who stand in the pulpit claiming that Jesus is Lord, but they don't truly believe it, nor are they influenced by the Spirit. This verse cannot be used as a source for following someone simply because they make an oral pronouncement. Instead, it is given as a means of discerning whether a proclamation is truly of the Spirit or not. Life application. All, as all scripture is given by God, nothing that scripture contains will ever contradict itself, nor will it be aligned, with, uh, aligned against the purposes of God. Further, any action within a church which is not in accord with scripture cannot be of the Spirit. This will become immensely important to understand later when Paul gives the directions for speaking in tongues. If those directions aren't in line with scripture, they are not of the Spirit. Verse 12, 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Paul returns back to the thought of verse 1 in order to continue his discourse on gifts. There he said, now, concerning spiritual gifts. And remember, gifts is just inserted by the translators. After that, he made an explanation concerning the distinction between dumb idols and the Holy Spirit. Now, based on understanding the true workings of the Spirit, he notes that there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. The word diversities is used only three times in the New Testament, and all three are found in verses 4, 5, and 6. Interestingly, the Spirit is noted in verse 4, Christ the Lord is noted in verse 5, and the Father called the same God in verse 6. Thus, this sequence of verses shows a purposeful expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The diversities then are shown to be reflective of the different workings of the Trinity in the believer. The process of salvation in the believer is always the same. It is by grace through faith. At the moment of salvation, the believer is sealed with the Spirit. However, from this point, different gifts are highlighted in individual believers, even though the source of those gifts remains the same. When the sun shines on an individual, the result is the same as the light shining on another person. They both receive the same light. However, when light shines through a prism, the light goes off into a variety of colors. The same light is received, but it is diffused as God determined through the created order. Such is the nature of salvation in the believer, followed by the expression of the gifts given to and through the believer. Life application. It is common to quote Jesus' words from Matthew 5, 16, which say, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The light that shines then should be a reflection of the person that you are as gifted by the Holy Spirit. Let the light which is shown on you be displayed in a manner worthy of the gift that you have received. Verse 12, 5. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Okay, here he uses the word ministry instead of service. All right, just as there are diversities of gifts, which is verse 4, given by the Spirit, there are also differences of ministries. The same word translates both diversities and differences in the sense of differing ministries. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when referring to the divisions of the priests and the Levites as recorded in 1 Chronicles and in the book of Ezra. In the church, there are elders, deacons, and so on. Each has a particular ministry to perform, and yet they all fall under, as Paul says, the same Lord, who is head of the church. The Lord here is certainly speaking of Jesus who commissioned the disciples in Matthew 10.1 and Luke 10.1 and who designated each apostle according to his choice, such as Peter's appointment in Matthew 16.18, where he was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. If you remember from our talk in early Acts, especially around uh, chapters um, 2, 6, and 8, and also in 10, what the keys to the kingdom mean. I don't know if you remember that, but who was the one person that showed up at every time? Peter. That's right, Peter. When the Holy Spirit was given to the Jews, Peter was there. When the Holy Spirit was given to the Samaritans, a different order of things happened, but Peter had to show up first. And then when the Spirit was given to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, Peter was there. He was given the keys of the kingdom to validate to the Jews, because he's the apostle to the Jews, that the Gentiles are included in the exact same salvation. And that's why that happened. And we can do it on the board sometime. It's a great study. It's wonderful to see that unfolded. I think I also did it maybe in the beginning of Romans and maybe even in the beginnings of one Corinthian study. But Peter had the keys to the kingdom. And once again, that shows us that hyper-dispensationalism is absolute nonsense. It is one of the stupidest doctrines on the face of this planet simply because it divides the body of Christ in an unhealthy way, and it says that there are two Gospels and not one. It is heresy. Anyway. Just try telling them that. Try telling them that. They won't listen. They won't take reason. They call the feast Jewish feasts, which they have to do. And Just let's not go into that now. Here I'm getting myself upset. People do not want to take the time to understand the purpose of the book of Acts. It is in no way, at all, in no way, shape or form, a prescriptive book. 
There are a couple of prescriptive statements by Jesus at the beginning of the book. There are a couple things that were prescriptions within the book for a certain amount of time, and that's about it. The rest of it is descriptive, and it was for the purpose of helping us to understand exactly the opposite conclusion that many people come to. Anyway, Peter exercised his use of those keys. Oh, here it is in Acts 2, 8, and 10, exactly as I said, during the establishment of the church. <laughs> if an appointment is a true appointment, it falls under the lordship of Christ, and there should be neither feelings of pride nor of lowliness. All right? Rather, each person who is appointed under Christ in true ministry regardless of its size or supposed importance, is fulfilling a job over which the Lord is in charge. For this reason, both boasting or feelings of lowliness are to be excluded. Okay, does anybody know who vacuums the church here at the Superior Word? Somebody that isn't even in the church. Burke, he comes early every Thursday and he does it. Does anybody know who cleans the toilets in the church? That's right, I do. Because I, yeah, that's all right. I do that, right? I have no problem with doing that. There's no exaltation in being the pastor, and there's no lowliness in me going in there and cleaning the toilets. All right. Hopefully they're clean. If they're not, talk to the person in charge. All right. Of the bathroom, that is. All right? The point is that we all have something we can do. And when you're doing your job for the church, there's no low position. You get into these churches where people have to stand in awe of the deacons or something, that is insane. They've been, you know what deacon comes from? Does anybody remember what the word comes from? Diakonos are two words. Dia means through and konos means dust, through the dust. They're dirty workers. And yet in some churches, they're given this unhealthy exaltation like they're the greatest things in the world. They're to scurry through the dust and get things done. That's what a deacon is. Anyway, life application. Do you have a ministry within the church? If you clean the bathrooms, there you go, as your task, is that a shame to you? If you're a pastor of an extremely large and popular church, is that a point of boasting to you? Would the people come to a fancy church if the bathrooms were utterly disgusting? So whose ministry makes the biggest difference? The jobs we might feel are lowly are actually of great importance. All jobs should ultimately be directed to the honor of the Lord. It doesn't matter what job you do. I will give an example of somebody who's no longer living, but married to a person in this particular uh, group right now. And she used to clean the bathrooms at Grace Baptist Church, and they were the cleanest bathrooms on the face of this planet. All right? I talked about that many, many times with people in the past. If those bathrooms were disgusting, people wouldn't go to that church, I guarantee you. They'd be like, man, that, those bathrooms are gross. I'm not going back there. People go in there, and it was just like you might as well walk into a supermarket or something. Food on the aisles. It was so beautiful. There you go. Nothing, nothing at all wrong with doing a job in a church if you're doing it to the best of your ability and you're keeping the church looking good or running properly or whatever. Lord, establish the work of my hands so that my tasks will bring glory to you. May it be that everyone understands you are the reason for all that I do. Whether sharing your good news, my Lord, or cleaning a bathroom on Thursday every week, or teaching others your precious word in each task, only your glory I seek. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful chance to come and to be a part of a fellowship here and with people that are online or that may be attending later, listening. And we thank you that people are interested in knowing your word and hopefully they're interested in knowing it properly. And if there's something that's wrong that was said today that isn't doctrinally correct, I would hope that you would open your eyes to the truth of it. 
and that we wouldn't be so bold as to say that, well, I, I, I'm 100% certain in doctrine because none of us can be. Without the Lord to guide us and to lead us, we're all fallible in many, many ways. And so we put our trust in you leading us and that we should follow obediently. Help us to do this and also be with the people that are here today, whether they're attending online or come later, that uh, you would guide them in their walk with you and in their uh, regular course of life, whether they're at work or whether they're out with people in public, that they would be the best representatives possible for the glory that is the person and who accomplished the work found in Jesus Christ. And so we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, let me back this thing up here. Oops, wrong one. There we go. Say goodbye to